designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Most architects are afraid to go to the community. Oh man, I can't wait to get there. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. My only announcement for this week is that I will be giving one of the keynotes at the AIA Architects in Action virtual conference this Friday. With the talk, I'll be demystifying the historic tax credit process, and so I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. So let's jump right in with the building spotlight. This week, I'm focusing on Sage Hall at Tuskegee University. This building was designed by Robert R. Taylor, who was the first Black graduate of MIT and the former vice president of Tuskegee Institute. The building opened in 1926 as a men's dormitory and was renovated in the late 90s. Be sure to check out the Tangible Remnants Instagram page to see some current and historic photos of the building. And now if you're wondering why I decided to choose a historic building in Alabama, it's because this week's episode features a fun conversation with Dr. Kwesi Daniels of Tuskegee University. Kwesi talks about his journey into the field during the episode, but for context, you should know that he is the head of the architecture department at the university, and his professional experience ranges across various disciplines, including historic preservation, architecture, sustainability management, and urban geography. In 2018, he began developing a historic preservation program at Tuskegee University, within the Robert R. Taylor School of Architecture and Construction Science, with the goal of training architecture and construction science management students to handle the nuances of historic properties. I first got virtually introduced to Kwesi during COVID when I was a mentor for five architecture students at Tuskegee, 
as part of the Preservation in Practice Program through the National Trust for Historic Preservation. This episode is such a fun one, and we get a bit into the weeds about the tools used to do some of the preservation documentation. His excitement for preservation is contagious, and I'm so excited that he's getting the next generation of architects and designers excited about the field. After the episode, feel free to check out the show notes for additional details about Quasi's background, as well as to get more information about things discussed on the show. And so, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Dr. Quasi Daniels. And so I remember being incredibly excited to find out that Tuskegee had a preservation program. And then uh, to meet you and seeing what you're doing with the students, particularly knowing that there's just not that many Black men in the preservation field. So I would love to learn more about what got you into the profession. So interesting enough, I first engaged in preservation in about 2001. I was in Philadelphia working with Habs. And so Habs actually was my very first official architecture internship. Okay. And we were documenting African-American historic sites in North Philadelphia. And as I was told then, this was a a very unique summer because we were doing six sites in a summer. And normally they would dedicate a whole summer to a site. Hmm. And I thought it was cool. You know, we got here to do some things, but honestly, I didn't see anybody who who looked like me. And so I was like, this is, this is not my space. I want to do architecture and I'm going to go out there and be an architect. And so I didn't, my next project around preservation came when I came back to teach at Tuskegee around 2000, I had to come back in 2003, but I, the project was around 2006, seven. Mm-hmm. And it was with a, what are known as the Tuskegee Rosenwald Community Schools. And, you know, we approached the, the person who approached me, at, you know, said, Hey, here's this project. We want to get this building placed on the national register. And, it had a number of challenges you know, or historic things related to it, including being one of the oldest rural schools uh, of our Tuskegee rural school model, dated 1919. Wait, and 1919. 1919. Wow. And it was also a hosting site for participants in United States Public Health Service study of untreated syphilis in African American males. And so I was like, whoa, this is kind of, mm-hmm. it's kind of deep. Right. And it was actually that project that opened up this world for me because we were looking at a community who had a need mm-hmm. and we were looking at how we could solve that need. But the very interesting thing is I didn't see how it could tie into architecture because it was like, this is not us designing anything. You know, we're just you know, restoring some windows and documenting some, you know, elevations, you know, but it didn't fit within the curriculum of architecture, mm-hmm. but I knew it was important. And it was the first time I learned about learning about a building, right? You know, new construction, uh, you don't learn about a building, you learn about the space where the building would be. Right. But with preservation, you have to be introduced to the building. It has a history, you know, it has relationships. You have to know those things. So fast forward, I still, I still wasn't sold. I just was like, Hey, it's something I did. It was great. I loved it. It changed my life, but you know, I'm still trying to be an architect. Right. You're like, that was nice, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
And so it really wasn't until I went to, until I was working on my PhD. Okay. And, and I was, I was looking at the social impact of Drexel University's expansion into North Philadelphia. And I had these grand ideas about how I was going to save the community and I'm going to stop all this expansion and growth. And, you know, everybody's going to throw a big party for me because I saved the world. And, right. Uh, right. <laughs> and what is your PhD in? Or what were you pursuing? I was stu- actually, I was studying urban geography okay. at Temple. Okay. And what, what drove me to urban geography was the ability to answer the question, how do we improve the conditions of African-American communities? And I never could understand, you know, now we talk about redlining, you know, the, the, you know, the highways running through our communities, like that's part of this standard conversation that that's happening. However, I didn't understand how all these connected and urban geography was sharing that with me. Interesting. Now, what I found over the course of my research, you know, it was about three, four years the development was happening so rapidly that I was like, you know, there's no way of stopping that train. And I remember having a conversation with one of the community residents that I was interviewing and we were really just like digging in. How do we, how do we help the community? What what's something we can do? And that's when historic preservation just like jumped out at me and started a preservation, well, starting the preservation program at Tuskegee, but it, it didn't, all click until I was talking to him and I was like, man, preservation has all of these tools. Right. Got the Preservation Act, you have Section 106. There's, you know, there's there's a social impact assessment that you have to do with historic sites. And so there's all of this like infrastructure right. to protect spaces. Right. And I was like, well, I may not be able to save the whole world, but I can save some really strong culturally significant environments. And then when I, you know, being back at Tuskegee and, and running the Department of Architecture, I was like, yeah, I mean, we're, sit on, we're, we're sitting in a National Historic Landmark. I mean, we're the, it's the only college campus in the country that's a, that's a National Historic Landmark. Dang. We have all these historic buildings around me. This is just, right. <laughs> just makes sense. And then the final thing that just sealed the deal, like, I was like, I'm done. I'm sold. You know, stick a pin in me and call me done. Mm-hmm. Was uh, we w- we were I was at a community meeting, <clears throat> and I was telling the you know these members of churches that you know, and sites that were all part of the the civil rights movement that we were telling them how we were starting a historic preservation program at Tuskegee, mm-hmm. and they gave us a standing ovation. Aww. I said I was like we ain't even done that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, okay, cool. But, and it hit me. I said, wow, the the community has been hungry for this. They've been waiting to hear that we were going to be reassuming a role. And I was like, this is, I guess this is where I'm supposed to be. Because I was brought here. All the spaces I've ever dealt with as it relates to preservation have been African-American sites. That's something most people couldn't say. Yep. And I've never really looked for it. I mean, outside of HABs, I applied for it. But even like the the uh, the rural school, I actually was kind of kicking. You know, I was brought to it kicking and, 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 and screaming because I was like, I've done enough outside work in right. in the community, you know. And you know, so I was like, listen, I said, go out there. <laughs> so I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> so you know, none of these I've, I've not 
I had not intentionally moved that in that direction yet. I was there doing the work and seeing how impactful it was. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was that moment that I knew I was doing something that the community respected, felt there was a need. And it was able to address something that was important to me, which was knowing how architecture could be used to meet the needs of our communities. Yeah. And from there, I was like, hey, I'm done. Let's go. Let's make it happen. It have been running ever since. I love it. I love it. And I think that's one of the things that really excited me when I heard that Tuskegee was starting a preservation program was because there one, there's not that many kind of there's not that many architects that understand historic preservation. There's not that many black architects that understand historic <laughs> preservation. Uh, and so then knowing just the history of Tuskegee and the fact that there would be potentially more people of color entering the profession of, of preservation was really exciting to me because I think for so long, preservation has put the spotlight on elevating the stories of those who don't look like us and not focusing on people of color, or other historically disinvested communities. The focus hasn't been there because the people who have been doing the nominations and deciding what to elevate to historic status haven't looked like us and haven't been focused on that side of history. And so I know the field has changed and there's definitely more focus now, but knowing that there will be more people who will likely make different decisions as you've been introducing architecture students to historic preservation and the field of it, what are some of the, what's some of the resistance or the pushback or even excitement that you're seeing in the students as they're learning more about preservation as a field? So, you know, there's been, there's really, there's been no pushback. And a lot of it I'd say is because of the approach that we've taken to preservation. Uh, I tell people that it, you know, as far as we're concerned, this is not your grandmother's preservation. Right. Yeah, you know, we are. You know, we're doing hands-on work with teaching students how to restore windows and repoint brick, or you know, exposing them to traditional trades. Mm-hmm. We're teaching students how to do documentation, where they're going out and you know, walking in buildings and learning about historic structures reports and assessments and and doing physical documentation you know by hand you know drawing it up mm-hmm. we're showing students how to also use the most latest and greatest technology to play in the space right. so they're you know we're using laser scanners and drones and we're using photogrammetry to create virtual models and virtual tours of spaces we're exploring augmented reality and virtual reality to, to document spaces and, and provide a digital footprint to a lot of spaces that would not be able to afford this type of access. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're also exploring design. So we're able to have conversations about what the building looks like currently and then can say, all right, so after we repair it, after we restore it, after we stabilize it, after we do all that needs to be done to, to get it you know, up and running again, what do you really want to be? Yeah. And we're able to now bring architecture to the conversation. You know, well, I should say design because it's all architecture. Right. I have a problem with the fact that we separate historic preservation out from architecture. It's, it's very problematic to me. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yes. So, you know, we can bring design. You know, because actually everything up to that is just pure research. Mm-hmm. 
the documentation, you know, the restoration work. I mean, all that's research. You're investigating, you're gaining an understanding of, you know, the resource that you're working with. And once you do all of that and you made decisions on how you stabilize it, now you can talk about how you're going to, you know, redesign that space for a new use or, or redesign it for a former use. But I say the thing that most excites me and our students when they get engaged in it are the spaces we get to walk into. Nice. I mean, listen, I, I feel privileged. I mean, come on. I've, I've, I've been inside of the home that Dr. King lived in with his family. Wow. Yeah. I've been inside the home that Rosa Parks grew up in that her father built for her. Wow. I've been inside the church that Dr. King spoke in. I've been inside the church where he was made president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was responsible for the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been inside Brown Chapel, the place where mass meetings were held. And when people were crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and what resulted in Bloody Sunday, this was one of the places they ran back to. Wow. I've been inside 16th Street Baptist Church, church designed by Wallace Rayfield, who was a Tuskegee architect. Mm-hmm. And we know it very well because it was also a church that was bombed. Right. I've also been inside of a building that was known to be fireproof and in my ignorance say yeah every building's got to be fire retardant you get inside and you see it's terracotta and concrete and uh, steel (laughs) and you're like oh this thing is fireproof okay yeah you y'all were serious like (laughs) (laughs) yes i've had a chance to be in 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 rural schools that people when we say that you know, there's an old, disgusting joke that says, if you want to hide anything from Black people, put it in a book. Mm-hmm. I've been able to be in schools where Black people totally defied that disgusting joke. Right. Because they said, whether you want to give us education or not, we're going to create it for ourselves and we'll build it for ourselves. And they did that. Right. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast. 
where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously, they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of, like, dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school. Just taking it day by day. Yes. But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. Yeah, the and I think the, the power of the buildings that you're talking about is one of the things that excites me about preservation. Like the research and things that you're talking about and even being able to know the history of the different spaces that you're going in. I think that's powerful. And so then as you were going into those spaces and kind of looking at them or just being in them, understanding their historic significance, do you think it would have been different if you didn't know the history of them? Or do you, or how does that kind of knowing the history and all that change the perception of the building? Oh, 100%. You know, you can't you can't engage in this work without knowing the spaces. And that's the thing that that is really the the most amazing thing about this is you can't engage in any work before you get introduced to the place and the space. Right. The buildings we walk into, you know, I remember one, it's the the Dr. Harris House, the Dr. Richard Harris House in on Jackson Street in Montgomery, Alabama. It was a a refuge for people escaping attacks when they came in into Montgomery. They were part of the Freedom Riders and Congressman, late Congressman John Lewis was among them. Dr. Richard Harris was a pharmacist who had recently, and I call his house the Noah's Ark. <laughs> Because he had recently expanded his house, and instead of using wood studs, he had used concrete for the flooring system and resurfaced his whole house in brick and had brought over the counter from his pharmacy. And so you have this huge counter inside this house. And so from the outside, it looks like a little, just a regular house. It's nothing, you know, it's not, not too, it's nondescript. Right. But when you walk inside, you know, you you could have about 50, 60 to 100 people inside comfortably being fed and taken care of. And he did that about 
a year or two before the Freedom Riders came in. So it's kind of like, you know, Noah's Ark where you know, God said, you know, build an ark. Right, right. <laughs> For what? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just do what I said. Right. And, uh, but we couldn't get started with any of the work because his daughter, Dr. Montgomery, oh, we had to get our, we, we had to get introduced. She pulled out. She pulled out the pictures. She pulled out the yearbooks. We, we, we. You know, one of my students played the piano, and so you know, we started doing some some Negro spirituals. I mean, listen, we went to church and went back to the viewers, the, the, the movement, all at the same time. And we didn't get. I think the first day, I don't think we actually really did any work that first day. Got you. At least not pen to paper, at least. No, there was definitely no pen. No, no, no. There was no pen to paper. It was definitely, you're going to get a learning lesson. Yeah. And what I love about it is that that's actually, that's what I've also seen every other site, you know, without going into detail of every single one. But these sites, when you go to them, there's a caretaker, there's a mother, there's a father, there's a, there's a champion for the site who is vested who who bleeds for the site, who, who sheds tears for the site, who said tears of joy and, un, and unhappiness and sadness. I mean, they, this is their purpose. And, and so, you know, you're not, going to, you're not going to come here without learning about where you are. And I love that yeah. because that's what allows you to now be a champion for it as well. Right. And it also makes the history more real. Like it becomes like a heart thing because you feel it and you understand more of the context and why it's important as opposed to just reading about it in a book where you're like, okay, yeah, the Freedom Riders went there. But then being in that space and being like, oh, they came here. And this yes. Like, it feels different. <laughs> if no longer, it's not, it's not four walls and a ceiling. Right. Now it's alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I also am excited about preservation. And I'm excited that your students are getting that experience as well. Cause I know you're saying, oh, there was no, no work done that first day, but like, that's the, the heart work, like the, the emotional connection, which makes you love a place even more. And I'm so grateful that they get to experience that with you and with the sites that they're going to. And so then I guess for those kinds of trips, how do the students because I guess I'm, I'm always intrigued by students who are getting into it for the first time. And students typically tend to be a little bit shy, not wanting to ask the questions, scared of doing the wrong thing, all that. So then how are they engaging with the people that they're meeting at the site? So are they inquisitive or are they just kind of like waiting to receive and not really wanting to ask the wrong question, if that makes sense? So it really all depends. Okay. So I think what, what happens is like anything, you know, just like meeting, meeting a person for the first time, you're kind of standoffish. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to get to figure out what connections do we have. However, you know, within, you know, by the time we leave their family, <laughs> by the time we return a couple of times, yeah. they have purpose. They understand why they're engaging in architecture. Mm-hmm. They're understanding the purpose of the building. This building is not something on a sheet of paper or a couple of lines you draw with this. 
fake expression about how this is going to be impactful. You're talking to people who are telling you how your architecture can be impactful. Right. And more specifically, we're talking about for a number of spaces, these are spaces that were designed by Tuskegee architects. Which is also wild. Some of them were built by students. So you're not just talking about the impact of architecture. You're talking about the impact of an architect who came from your institution, who was sitting in your chair a hundred years ago. Right. And you're learning about the impact that they had, an impact that they died never even knowing that they had or would have. Right. That is, it, it transcends anything you could ever try to impart in a student by reading a book to them, you know, telling them to look at a video online. No, you have to be here to understand it and experience it. Mm -hmm. And then to see the joy. When you see a, I think she's 80, Miss Woody, who is the caretaker of the Armstrong School, we helped her secure a $30,000 grant. This 80 plus year old woman jumped up, <laughs> I literally jumped and started doing a happy dance. I said, man, you look like you got more energy and, and younger than me right now. <laughs> so, you know, when you see, when you see that, when you're a student or, or, or a staff person, when you, when someone hugs you and thanks you for the contribution that you have yet to make, mm -hmm. but they recognize your potential because you showed up. Oh, the students are sold. Yeah, that's huge. They are sold. The question is then how quickly can we get this work done? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's fantastic. And so then I know that you and Tuskegee have formed a partnership with UPenn and doing a collaboration. And so being a UPenn grad, I legit was like, wait, what? Let me find out. Penn is doing some cool things with Tuskegee. So I would love to learn more about how that partnership came together. I hear you talk about that. So, yeah, we, it goes right back to, right before the pandemic, about a year before the pandemic. I, so we, we initially were doing some work with Columbia. They, it was a, one of the individuals who was running a class coming out of Columbia. They were, they were looking at Montgomery at some sites and had initially done some work. And because the majority of their work is international, the gentleman's name is Will Reynolds. He, he said, Hey, I have a, I have a contact, Randy Mason over at UPenn that I would love for you to connect with. Mm -hmm. I think he could take this work and, you know, the work that y'all are doing and, and really help elevate y'all and help you want, you know, gain deeper, deeper understanding of this field nice. and also help support the growth of your program. Mm -hmm. And so Randy came down, saw what we were doing and it was like, Hey, we would love to jump on board and, and support it. And now for about four years, we've, we've done work around civil rights sites. Our major joint project is with the Armstrong school where we're figuring out how to get it stabilized and get it preserved. They've been able to bring an expertise to the, to the classroom because they've been doing it for a little over 30 years mm -hmm. that is, has such a level of depth 
that can bring where they brought faculty who engage in conservation. So we've learned how how much information you can collect from some paint samples. Right. You couldn't have told me that you could do something with some paint. <laughs> it's like it's paint. It's a layer right. of paint. Who cares? Like, it's like, it's like no. It doesn't even look like it's that big, and you put it under the no, like, no. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> layers and layers and layers. It's like a mountain range. Like you cannot. No, right. no. Exactly. Uh, you know the amount of you know how much love you can you can have for some masonry or. Or the kind of testing you can do to to learn about wood, like you know how you can date a building based on these things. I mean, it just it really it opened up a whole other world for us. And what I would say is really beautiful about you know this engagement is they show us they give they give us an opportunity to peek into into the, the rabbit's hole and see how deep it goes, mm-hmm. and then we're able to go back and start figuring out how to jump into that hole ourselves. Right. And so through this engagement, it's it's helped us be clearer about what we need at Tuskegee to do preservation for communities in the Black Belt mm-hmm. of Alabama. Gotcha. You know, we need conservationists and you know archaeologists, anthropologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, this this list is growing, but we the fact that we can say this is this is a need. I love that yeah. Be, because people you know people got to know what what you need to bring to the table in order to do the work, mm-hmm. and they they've been very instrumental in helping us, yeah, uh, you know, put our fingers on what what the needs are. Yeah, and that's fantastic to hear because because the material science side of preservation is a whole. Another, another beast <laughs> in terms of like you're talking about being able to about being know able about the order of paint order. and that kind of stuff. But also I like yeah, that I like you're that able to layer in that information and learning more about that. Do you think Tuskegee will at some point in time want to do like a conservation lab kind of thing? Oh yeah. No, we're we're actually developing it now. Oh great. Oh yes. We we're developing it. We've been tremendously blessed. Not only our engagement with the Penn, but also the Park Service, National Trust, mm-hmm. uh, Advisory Council for Historic Preservation, like you know, the National Trust, Hope Crew. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there have been all these rock stars who've come and said, "I hear what you're doing, and we want to support you." And so, I think you want to, you need to go check out this space right here. And, and so, like every person who's come down, they've brought gifts to us in terms of information. And we've taken those gifts and what's the most beautiful thing about it, and this is, I think, what gets our students excited, is that we show them how to bring these, bring these tools and these gifts into communities of people who look just like them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, it, I, it gets fun. You know, you, like, I, we were at Florida A&M University a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know if you've ever heard of, have you heard of the mounds? The indigenous mounds that are around the country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I had never heard of them until maybe two months ago. Yeah. And the only reason I heard of them is because I have a colleague who's done a lot of work with indigenous populations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, we were, we were driving back from FAMU and I saw a sign on the road that, you know, discussed this mound. It's the, I was there, 
Colomokio Mount, I, I definitely are destroying it, but you know, it's outside of Georgia between the Alabama and Georgia border. So if you see it, please excuse my you know, pronunciation. But the thing that was so, so amazing about it is it, it, it's like guerrilla preservation. You're like riding along, we have all our laser scanning and drone equipment in the back. And it's like, oh, check out, we got to scan that, we got to document it. That's awesome. <laughs> 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 You're like, I hope nobody comes around. I don't think we broke a law, but you know what? We're going to do this quick so that nobody finds out. You got to say a prayer. So folks, so you know, folks understand. Like, listen, we are here. We're here to tell the story. We're here to make sure people know we're not here to to, to pillage and, and or anything like that. But we got to document this. People got to know about this. I mean, it is. I mean, we couldn't do this. We couldn't have this kind of fun. Just doing regular architecture. I mean, it's cool to sit in the lab and like pump out some ideas. Right. But man. It's something else. You you see something and you quickly pulling out some scanning equipment and trying to get it done. And you pull out a drone and people come, what's that? What you doing? And you know, I mean, you're you're in it. So <laughs> that's amazing. I'm, I love the gorilla preservation. I love it. <laughs> oh, and it's funny because my coworkers give me a hard time because I have what it's uh, basically like a survey bag. Survey bag. In my car. In my car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going on sale. Yeah, I'm going on sale. 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 I'm you know, while you're running, no, you got to have it all in there. Oh, man, we were on campus. I had my bag, my gorilla bag. Right. And we're, we're walking in one of our buildings, Sage Hall. It was a building designed by Pursley okay. and, and Robert R. Taylor. And it was one of Taylor's last buildings. Hmm. And so we, they, we're, we're, we're walking around, you know, contractors telling us all about it and. He opens up the 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 hatch to go up into the ceiling, and uh, I'll pull out my headlamps, <laughs> and then they're not making fun of me. You really have a you, so you just carry you just carry a headlamp in your bag. That's just what you do. Exactly. Yeah. Don't don't be jealous. I mean, exactly. I mean, I appreciate the haters, you know. But right. yeah, I'm about to walk up in here. Look, just look around this, and you can't do it. Exactly. So, but I feel you. You know, it was that door to explore. Yes. Bad fact, like I can reach in this thing. And I can pull out everything you need. I, I'm gonna tell you the thing. Speaking of tools, the thing that I love so much about this space is when you show up on site. You know how you would see the, the, you know, the old films with the doctor who would make house house visits. Yeah. And they have their bag, mm-hmm. and they look like they were coming in to do something really official. Superficial. I mean, you think about as a. You know, traditional architect. There is no official thing that you look like you're about to engage with in when you walk on the site. That's fair. You're just going to walk, hey, I got a camera. I look around. You know, you can't tell I'm about to do some business or whatever. I'm just kind of here. I can be in and out and you won't even know. When you pull up to the site with your, you know, with your gorilla bag, right. 
and yeah. your, your laser scanning mm-hmm. equipment and your drone. Mm-hmm. You got you know, might be going inside, so you got the lights with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you pull up a it looks like a whole ring for a production company. Yes. And then you get busy. Like, oh, you might only be out there for for a couple of minutes, but man, it is a production. It's a whole show. It says we are about to dissect this thing mm-hmm. and learn something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it! I love it so much. <laughs> well, amazing. So, of all of the things that you are doing at Tuskegee with the students and the and the program, what is currently exciting you the most? Oh, man. Uh, you know, the first question you asked is how I got to preservation. Uh, but the thing about it that is not as well known is that I, I actually. I'm not a preservationist. I'm a sustainability practitioner. Hold on. How did we get all the way to the end? We just, OK, say more. Okay. Say more. <laughs> so. To, you know, as they say in architecture, the most sustainable building is an existing one. Mm-hmm. And, and so I see preservation through the eyes of a sustainability practitioner. Absolutely. It's the sustainability of community. Mm-hmm. It's the sustainability of resources. The sustainability of culture. My my degree, you know, I'm saying, like, you know, so what was I studying? I was studying urban geodesy. And in that program, you know, we had three elements in, of which one was sustainability. Mm-hmm. So I came to it through sustainability, but I left it doing, doing historic preservation. And so the reason I say that is because the most recent project that I have right now, that we're actually unveiling it to the community tomorrow. Is a bookmobile. Okay. Okay. So our students in our first year were, were approached by someone in the community named Judge Biggers. She's a local judge in juvenile court. And she has a group policy council for children policy council for Macon County. And they had gotten a grant to do a bookmobile for children where you convert an old school bus into a movable library to address the Illiteracy rates of third graders in Macon County, because currently 70% of third graders are reading below level. And so I'm so excited because tomorrow, we've already given it to them, but tomorrow we unveil it to the community. And our students last year did the design, our students this year actually built the design. Oh, cool. And so we were able to convert an old bus and repurpose old shipping pallets in order to create this environment for our students. Oh, that's amazing. And what I love about it is we get to, on, on my end, I can have a conversation about preservation that can span design, traditional architecture design, and can span into a very traditional hard line related to preservation. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, these aren't separate conversations. Right. We can have conversations about contemporary sustainability issues using an architecture hat and a historic preservation hat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what 
to me makes all this work so exciting that the same students who I can have in a class, we just went looking at some old buildings and figuring out how to preserve them and, and document them, can turn around and have a, a whole nother conversation with me about how we can repurpose shipping pallets or shipping containers and some very contemporary stuff. And when they ask me why, and or you wonder how this all connects, mm-hmm. I can say it's all about being sustainable. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh, and that is what is so I needed. needed. That is, that's the thing. That's They're the thing. two sides of the same coin. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I am so excited you were doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for doing it. And oh, okay. I love it. Amazing. Awesome. Hey, you know, when you're when you're doing that, when you're doing the work that that you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And and the truth is we all can't we all don't don't get the opportunity to connect with things or the thing that you you know you're supposed to be doing. Right. So to 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 have connected and know this is where I'm supposed to be playing. It's like being a kid and going to the playground and playing in the sandbox. You know, you're, you're, you're having fun every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just very blessed and I feel honored to, to be able to do this work and be able to do it for my people. Yeah. I feel that. I, 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 I mean, get to walk in the, walk in the door and know whatever challenges you have, I got some stuff in my gorilla bag for you. <laughs> And uh, when I leave here, you're gonna be happy I came. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, most most folks, most architects are afraid to go to the community. Right, that's real. Oh man, I can't wait to get there. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song, Fireflies, from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which, by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them and setting them free that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this I'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.